Hey, good morning, Northeast. Welcome to series we call Maturity in Bloom. We are working our way through the book of James from start to finish. We're going to spend the next several weeks unpacking this book. And even though it's a new series, though, this is part of an ongoing conversation. At the beginning of the year, we started this conversation on what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus? And what does it look like to follow him every single moment of every single day? Not just on Sundays, but what does it look like on Monday when you go into work? And not just when life is great, what does it look like to follow him when life is hard? And that's really what brings us to the book of James. Reality is, no matter who you are, where you're from, everyone has struggle. Everyone has seasons where life knocks the wind out of you. Where one minute everything is great, and the next minute you're talking with a doctor about a lump. One minute everything is great, and the next minute you're trying to figure out how ends me. One minute the kids are fine, and the next minute you just don't know at all how to get through to them and how to help them. No matter who you are or where you're from, everybody has seasons of, of living as broken people in a broken world. And it's in these moments that we're left wondering and often ask the question, where's Jesus in this? And and honestly, Jesus, why'd you bring me into this? If you're in one of those moments or asking one of those questions, then this is not only a series for you, but James is a book for you. So grab your Bibles and head with me to the book of James in the New Testament. James is three quarters of the way through. So in the back, it's after the book of Hebrews, but right before a bunch of little epistles, First, uh, Second Peter, First, Second, Third John, Jude, and we're going to look at this over the next several weeks. James, one of the more practical books of the Bible, and right out of the gates, he addresses of how do we live in seasons of struggle. In fact, it's one of the themes of the book, one of the reasons we're going to talk then about what does it look like to pursue spiritual maturity, to see that bloom no matter the season. Chapter one, if you have it in front of you, follow along with me. If not, we'll put it on the screen so you can read along. James, a servant of God and of the Lord, Jesus Christ. To the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. So must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich man in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. Rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. I love how James begins the book as he begins writing. He himself, one of the shortest introductions in scripture. But James says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord. A servant 
of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are dozens of ways that Jesus this letter and countless things he could have said about himself to grab our attention and get us to want to listen to him. Understand when we're talking about James, as the author of the book James, we're talking about the brother of Jesus. James, the half-brother. James, the brother of Jesus. He could have started this letter any way he chose. If I were him, I probably would have been tempted to throw that out there. Like, hey, listen to me because I'm the brother of Jesus. Who spent the longest with him? Who spent more time with him than me? Maybe Mary, but I mean, next to that, right? I mean, you have all the disciples, that, but they only spent three years with Jesus. I grew up with the guy. It would have been tempting, I would think, to say, hey, I'm the brother of Jesus. Use that to your advantage. Or even more so, to say, a leader in the church in Jerusalem. James, at this point, is one of the key leaders of the church in Jerusalem. In fact, if you go back to the book of Acts, which is the history book for the New Testament, in Acts chapter 21, when Paul goes into Jerusalem to give a report on his ministry, it says in Acts 21 that he went and met James and the elders. Just everybody else. James and the elders. It's one of the New Testament ways of showing prominence among James, of James among the rest of of the leaders of the church. James is the only one listed. James and the elders. Of all Jesus and seen Jesus and, and walked and talked with him, it's James and the elders. And yet what I love is that James begins his letter not pointing to any of those things, not pointing to a pedigree, not pointing to a title. Just calls himself a servant. The reason I bring this up is because I believe James is modeling right from the start in this book what maturity and bloom looks like, what this posture should look like in our lives. James doesn't claim else but being a servant of Jesus. James boasts only in that. And James is writing this letter in a very particular season of struggle for the church. The church is being persecuted has shifted its mentality, its, its thought towards the church. It no longer views it in the friendly terms it once did. Instead, it is now opposing the church, seeking to arrest Christians, to kill them. In fact, James lost his life not long after writing this letter. It's a terrible season of struggle, and in the midst of that, many of the Jewish people who had come to faith, these Jewish Christians, this is why he addresses it to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. dispersed. They've been scattered. James is seeking to encourage them, but he does, does so through this posture of humility. In the, in the face of intense persecution, he's going to write to them, what does it look like to keep Jesus when times are tough? Which really becomes the theme of the book. True faith in times of trouble, or, or you might say steadfastness, in seasons of struggle. That's really the theme. You're going to see those words come. And James wants to write, what does it look like for us to be disciples in these moments? And he doesn't waste any time getting to those moments. He dives right in. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. If your translation may say, consider it all joy. And our tendency in the English, though, is to skip past those front words and just focus on joy. Like, you want me to be happy, 
about the fact that things are hard. You want me to feel good about bad things. James is talking about emotion, but he's not. See, that first word, count or consider, really matters in this. James asking us to think rightly about the problems. He's not wanting to talk to us about how we feel. He's not saying you need to feel okay even though things are hard. No, no, no. I want you to think rightly. I want you to count. I mean, step back, look at everything, figure it out, consider how everything is working, and I want you to count it as joy. He's not calling us to feel joyful in the midst of hardship. He's calling us to think rightly about hardship. He's not saying, hey, you have to love it. You have to. Not saying you need to be fake when you, when you come to church. You need to, you know, just slap on a happy face, ignore the fact that you were arguing all the way here. Maybe that's happened before to some of us, hypothetically. Doesn't mean that we just fake it till we make it. James acknowledged life is hard. Things are not going well for the church right now. They have been dispersed. But think rightly about these moments, he says. See, it's okay to lament, and there's a difference between uh, lament and complaint. We're not called as Christians to ignore the ugly reality that we are broken people living in a broken world. If you look at one of the largest, the book of Psalms, right in the middle of the Bible, the majority of the Psalms are what we call Psalms of Lament, where David is pouring out his heart, and a lament is like this grief poem. It's this grief prayer. It is this struggle broken in a broken world. And David is so open and honest with God. We'll often just say, I hate that this is happening. God, I don't want this to be happening. God, avenge the people who are opposing me. Fix this. And yet what lament does comes back to God, not the problem. And David will frequently in his Psalms of lament come back and say, but Lord, if you're in it, I trust you. Lord, I'm going to continue to look to you. See, here's the difference between lament and lament is about fixing your eyes on God. Complaint stays fixated or focused on the problem. Lament seeks rest and comfort from God. Complaint seeks only a solution from God. And so where lament wants God himself, complaint just from pain. The scriptures call us to biblical lament. James doesn't hide from the fact that it is hard, and it is okay that it is hard, and it's okay to acknowledge that it's hard. But he says, in the midst of the hard, here's how I want you to think. Count it joy. Why? He says, verse three, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have work, have full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is a key word in James, steadfastness. He's gonna bookend the book of James of this conversation of suffering. And here, chapter one, he's repeating both of these themes again in chapter five. It's his dominant theme. This idea of steadfastness means patient endurance. I want you to be patient, and I want you to patiently endure. Why? is going to use this, he says, in this way, this result of making you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
I sure feel like I'm lacking stuff. I feel like I'm lacking provision. I feel like I'm lacking what I need. James is talking, God is gonna use these seasons of struggle to do something in our hearts, in our person, to bring about character and spiritual maturity, maturity in bloom because of the testing and the trials. God is not get you to a point where you never struggle again. He is promising to use every struggle for your good, his glory, your maturing. If, if you consider it rightly, let it have its work in you. He's calling us to view every trial as a training ground. A while ago, and I won't tell you how long ago it was, but when I turned 40 a while ago, um, I decided it was going to be the best year of my life. Whether that happened is for a separate conversation, but part of the goal in that was I also wanted to make it one of the best years of running for me. I was determined as a, as a runner, having a long time, everyone was telling me, oh, just wait till you get to 40, which is like so encouraging when you're coming up on your birthday, right? Like, oh, Yeah. Just wait. And so as a runner, I was like, no, 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 no. Like, I'm going to burst through this. I'm not going to let four. And so I determined I'm going to train harder, and I'm going to make 40 my best year of running, you know, just kind of prove myself. So I reached out to a friend who's a, a, a running coach and has done triathlons and a few times before, and he'd always told me, like, hey, if you want help, if you want to know stuff, like, just reach out to me. And so I, I finally reached out, headed up to his place, moved me early in the mornings and run up in New Braunfels. And uh, in the first couple of weeks, he's kind of letting me get my legs under him in this new pace. And then finally, he said, all right, let's, let's dive in. It's time to start track work. Now, that sounds a lot more fun than it really is. And when he said it, I was like, yeah, I, I would tell people, like, yeah, I, I'm going to go run the track. Like, I'm training. We're doing track work. You know, because, I mean, it, it sounds like you got something to offer, except by the end of doing track work, you realize that you just want to see Jesus. Like, take the wheel, bring me home right now. And I was so thankful, never been more thankful for running so early in the morning. He made me wake up extra early. We had to like hop the fence to get into this track. And by the end of the session, I remember sitting there, I'm so grateful it is dark and no one can see me. And I have no idea how I'm going to get myself over that fence and out of here and in the car and shower and then go to work and somehow not vomit all over myself at some point. I felt horrible. And he insisted that it was helpful. And not only that it was helpful, but that we needed to do it again. These are the hard moments. Hard to believe that the things that are that hard, that make us feel that bad, will actually be that good for us. James is saying, I want you to think rightly about this. And what's easy to do in a standpoint for our lives is hard to do from the spiritual. I, the gospel calls us in this to view every trial as a training ground for maturity. View every trial as a training ground for maturity. James is saying, hey, there's certain things in life that God is going to use, and don't let it escape 
your, your grasp or your mindset that God is going to use this to make you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And we know about certain things in life. In fact, we preach this to our kids and we pray for these things on our children. I, I, I can't wait till you get a job. And then someone else is yelling at you and you realize I'm not the only one that's soul crushing your dreams, right? Interest in the military. And we're like, yes, please go into the military. Let someone just beat the snot out of you for a week so that you realize you have to listen. You have to have discipline. Like life is not peaches and cream. We need this for our kids, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. Why is it that what we want for our children is the very thing that we reject for ourselves? When the gospel says that trials are the for our soul, trials are the thing that will train us for spiritual maturity. It's the place where maturity is in bloom. James is saying God loves us enough not to leave us, but to use all things. The book of Romans says God used all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He loves us enough not to leave us as we are, but instead to shape us and mold us and mature us. If, if you're new to the Christian faith, maybe a little skeptical of faith, you might be hearing this and thinking, like, yeah, I knew Christians were reared, and this proves it. Like, consider it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. Like, who does that? No sane person does that. Honestly, the, the American gospel and the view of God that we tend to have is such that God should bubble wrap my life so that the difficult things don't hit me, but instead bounce off of me. Like, to protect me from suffering and struggle, and you're telling me that he's actually going to allow it, and I'm supposed to be grateful for it because it's going to do something better in me? Like, it doesn't make sense. But if your view of God is that his job is you, then you'll misunderstand not only God's goal for you, but also the gospel to you. His goal for you is not just to protect you from life. His goal is to mature you through life. This is why most frequently refer to God as Father. And though that may be a struggle for you because of your family background, we all have a sense in our head of what a good father is and should be like, who desires his children to be complete, lacking in nothing. Guys, I'm going to use everything. You live in a broken world, and you yourself are a broken person, but I'm going to use all of that for your good. The gospel says that, yes, God will absolutely save us and rescue us from death. Well, why doesn't he just at that moment, like, bless our socks off? Isn't that a better way to grab the world's attention? Like, hey, every time someone chooses Jesus, like, they get a boat. Every time someone someone like, man, they never get sick again, and like everything is great for them, all their relationships are perfect, like maybe I should follow Jesus too. Why doesn't God work that way? It would certainly attract a lot of attention, and more people would love him and follow him because of the stuff, right? God wants more for us than, the, than just the trappings, the accessories of life. The gospel says that he wants to do a work in you. And in his sovereignty and his power, 
he is able to use even the hardest things to mature you. See, what God desires for your life is that in the midst of the hard, people would take Peter calls it shining like stars, that you would shine like stars. They would see your life and be like, man, like you're getting hit with the same things I am. Why is it that, why is it that you're doing so much better than I am? I hear you telling stories and, and doctor's visits right now, and they don't know what's wrong, and you're in constant pain, and you keep showing up to work, and you keep greeting people, and you're happy when you tell me that you're in chronic pain. Like, what's different about you, and, and why is you are responding that way when, when that's not how I feel? Because God is seeking to use these things to make us shine like stars in a very different way, to mature us, and we're called then by the gospel to view every training ground for maturity. So, so that's it, right? Just think differently, and okay, here we go. No, no, no. First, we're called to think different, but now James is going to tell us, all right, here's what you do. I want you to think rightly, and now I'm going to call you to do something in the midst of those up in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. will be given to him. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now it can seem at first glance like James is shifting gears, moving to a different conversation. In fact, we're gonna find this quite a bit in James where he seems to suddenly shift but what I want you to see here is that James is actually continuing this conversation on suffering, on struggle, trials. What he's going to do is lead us into a conversation with this question of what are you clinging to? Challenge if we're clinging to God's wisdom or our own. And then he's going to challenge whether we're clinging just to, to stuff and, and our lives versus his. The first five through eight is about wisdom. It's an extension of suffering these things for you, but if in the midst of them you lack wisdom, ask God who gives generously to all and gives without reproach. What James is saying is so often in these moments, it's easy to ourselves to, to do what we did last time in the situation, to, to Google the answer or to order something on Amazon, a book that will fix our child or fix our marriage. He said, but hey, in the midst of the struggles of if you don't know the answer, that's okay. God does, so ask God for wisdom. Cling to him first and foremost. Cling to him. So first, who's clinging to? James says, I want you to know this. When, when you ask God for wisdom, he gives generously to all without reproach. He, he's going to give us, James is going to give us two things about God in this that should comfort us and lead us to pray that he gives generously to all. When we are in need of wisdom, God longs to give that wisdom to us in generous fashion. Why? Because God wants us to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So when we give us wisdom for how to navigate, 
not around the struggle, but through it so that we are refined by it. He's gonna grant us that and he's gonna do so generously. It may not feel like it in the moment, but he's gonna lead you. He wants this for you. Jesus described the father as a good father who gives good gifts to his children. There's a generosity of the father that we can pursue. But secondly, not only generously to all, wisdom generously to all, but he gives without reproach, James says, without reproach. That word reproach literally means And operates in a current. He will convict you to lead you to repentance and change, but not shame you, not blame. Jesus paid that penalty that we might with boldness come before the throne. And this is why James says, pray, pray in faith, not doubting. It's not the measure of your faith that will determine if God gives you what you need, right? It's not on you. It was on Jesus. He paid it all. It's faith, meaning confidence in God's moment. Come confidently that God is generous, that he loves you as his child and he wants to answer you. Come confidently that he is not frowning at you and blaming you and sickened by you for what you've done. Confidently, and not with any of those doubts, because those doubts will keep you from embracing the maturity that he is wanting to bring about in your life. So it's first, it's a question, are you going to embrace? And then secondly, he brings up this issue of the poor, the lowly, and the rich. He's not switching gears again, it's a continuation of what are you clinging to? trial, it's easy to look at what we have as either the reason that we're struggling or the solution for our struggle. If you are a lowly brother, meaning poor, your translation may read poor, you should boast, boast, exaltation. 
That word boast literally means confidence. Have confidence in your exaltation. Well, that's a weird thing to have confidence in. What James is gonna do consistently through the book is give these allusions back to Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of the biggest James writing. And what did Jesus say about those who are pure, poor? Blessed are the poor spirit. Blessed are the meek. You can have confidence before God because if that is your posture, poor, you are feeling like you have nothing and nowhere to turn and you don't know what to do, then you are primed and ready for a work of God. He does his best work in people who feel like they have nothing to offer. And he's just waiting for you to come and acknowledge that to him. And so if you're feeling like you have a lack, then man, that's the great starting point. Man, take confidence that God hears you in that. That's the heart, the humbled heart that he's ready to meet. The rich man should equally in his humiliation, have confidence in his humiliation. That sounds really weird, right? Because in humiliation in our culture, like I've been humiliated, meaning embarrassed. I don't want to show my face there again. That is not the same sense of the word that James uses here in the original. James is saying, here, hey, you should boast and take confidence that the things that you had built up, that once you had put your hope in, don't really matter. That, that the stripping away of those things doesn't change anything. Don't put your confidence in those because the reality is those things will pass and they will fade. And so will the rich man fade away, the rich man trusting in those things fade away in the midst of his. Said, Don't take confidence in that. It looks and maybe sounds like this. If in a difficult season or in a job transition or job loss, if you're saying, well, but it's good because we're savers, it's good because they grant a great package and, and we're good. If that's your confidence, that's where James is throwing the flag on the play. No, no, no. Be poor in spirit. Be meek. Be humble. Don't put confidence in those things because all of that fades. And the reality is money doesn't cure cancer. It may get you some great treatment, but Jesus is the author of our faith. He is the giver of life. He counts and numbers our days. Days don't change if you have more or have less. We put our confidence in Jesus. Having a lot of stuff doesn't rescue your children when their hearts are broken and hurt. It may provide things for them in life, but it can't fix the aches deep within this is why James, when he calls us, have this question of confidence, of what we have confidence in, what we're clinging to. He says, in times of trial, consider what you're clinging to. Are you, are you clinging to your wisdom or God's? Are you clinging to what you have or who he is? If there's anything we are to have confidence in, put your confidence in. I, I love verse one again that sets the tone for it all. He is a servant of Jesus. If I'm to have confidence in anything in the midst of this struggle and trial, I'm confident in the fact that I am with Jesus. It's not about what you have, but who you have. So the question is, where does this leave us? What's, what's the takeaway as we kick off this book and this conversation on what does maturity look like? How do we be ever maturing and following Jesus? 
James would leave us with one of two postures that we can choose from. We can either choose to embrace what God is doing, a posture of embracing, a posture of of surrendering, I would argue, take up a posture of resisting and fighting. And to be perfectly honest, when seasons of struggles come into my life, quite often my first reaction is to choose the latter, a, a posture, a response of fighting. And the problem with that is that it's really hard to rescue someone who's fighting. If you're a parent and you've ever had your child just go into full-on meltdown on the floor, and you've been in a position where you need to get them out of the room or, or out of the store or wherever it was, you ever try to pick up a child that is just like flailing? You ever served as a life? You remember the training about water rescue for someone who is in a panic and flailing? You can't rescue them unless they are willing to be rescued. You can't rescue them unless there is a posture of surrender. You can't rescue them unless they down for a moment and they let you wrap your arms around them. James is calling us to a posture. Hey, consider in all of these things that you're facing. And have the right posture in them and pursue God and his wisdom and humble yourself. And in this, what is your posture? I don't know where this finds you in this season. And maybe it finds you in a season of struggle. A season where the things that you were once sure of are totally gone. The things that you once counted on and looked to have changed or maybe even disappeared. James would say, man, in this season, count, consider, think about what God is doing and don't resist it, but because he is doing a work in you that absolutely will mature you and perfect you, making you complete, lacking in nothing, but it takes a posture. In Northeast, we talk about this posture, arms out, hands open. It's really the posture of a servant. Just as James said, I am a servant. It's this posture of saying, God, my life is yours. My arms are out, my hands are open. Jesus, whatever you want into my hand. And you can take whatever you want from it. And I trust you because you're the master and so I give you my life. But here is my heart and my posture Would you pray with me as we close? And maybe James is hitting you right on the home front this morning in a place where there has been this season of, and in that struggle, you've wrestled with God. You've struggled with God. Maybe if you're being honest with yourself, you've even been angry with God. James would call you back to a father who longs to give you wisdom and to guide and direct you and do a work in you. If you will let him do his work, would you today just posture yourself before him? Arms out, hands open. Would you say, Father, I am your servant. So Father, we come and we pray that prayer. We acknowledge how often we fight and resist the work that you are doing. 
how quick it is to see it in others' lives and acknowledge that it will be for their good, but how quick we are then to reject it in our own. God, we repent of that. And Father, some in the room today, some watching online are struggling deeply and you see it and you know it. So I'm asking, Father, on their behalf, as they seek you today in this moment, would you give generously of your wisdom? Pen and mend their hearts. Father, would you draw near to us as you promise in the scriptures to draw near to those who are brokenhearted? And Lord, would you have your way in us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing? We ask it in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. If you want to talk to someone about a decision you've made or let us know how God is moving through this series, visit nebc.ch slash contact. Be sure to stay connected with us throughout the week on social media or by subscribing to our weekly podcast. You can also stay up to date with the latest information about what's going on here at Northeast by subscribing to the Northeast News our periodic newsletter that comes right to your inbox to keep you in the know. Thanks for listening to today's message, and we hope that you join us as we continue to make disciples on mission for Jesus Christ.